1: Hello, ahoy, and welcome to a brand new episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly. My name's Dan, thank you for being there. If you've never heard us before, well, you've stumbled upon the smartest show in the history of the solar system. Who knew? How lucky are you? Every week, we look at... All the science secrets that are lurking through the universe, sometimes in space, sometimes in jungles, other times underwater. And we cover all that this week. You can hear about the future of robots. Seriously, how tiny ones could soon swim through your blood to
2: save your life. We'll talk about that with the genius Onshun Pak. So these robots are very small. So there is like thickness of the size of your hair. So it turns out that when you want to have this robot to swim in such a small scale, so the way that they need to swim is very different from how we swim. So the idea is how can we use a computer algorithm to teach them how to swim by itself without us telling them how to swim.
1: And you can hear another brilliant episode of Amy's Aviation learning about everything to do with planes. This week, it's about what actually powers them.
3: This means that the jet engine and the plane it's attached to are off. All that air that the engine needs is sucked in by a giant fan at the front of the engine.
1: And I've got your questions as always this week, trying to figure out how carbon is made and how deep the tree roots go. It's on the way in a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. We start every show in the same way, looking at what science has been in your news this week. The James Webb Space Telescope, it's back again. We love hearing about it, that massive telescope. Looking at the oldest parts of the universe, it's taken a picture of the Pillars of Creation. It's a phenomenon that shows stars being made. In the picture, you'll see beams of almost cloudy light that shoot upwards like two towers. And the picture was taken uh, of things 6,500 light years away also space probes have found a big crater being made on mars it threw rocks and ground 19 miles away it's made a 150 meter wide bowl and it's kind of been made by something the size of a truck colliding with the red planet and making its mark how amazing is it we're doing things in the universe sending rovers to mars and they are catching space history as it is being made. It'll leave us much better prepared for what could happen here on Earth one day. And finally, the Woodland Trust is urging you not to dump your pumpkins. We're a little after Halloween now, but if you do have some lying around, the Woodland Trust charity says they can be very harmful to hedgehogs. Many people think that putting pumpkins in the woods is a good idea because they turn to compost and can help trees, but the charity actually says they're quite toxic if hedgehogs eat them and instead could be used as bird feeders or donated to farms as animal feed what a brilliant idea making an old pumpkin into a bird feed encouraging more wildlife in the ecosystem of your garden that's fantastic Let's catch up with Professor Hallux now Every week we hear from loads of our favourite science geniuses on the show For the last few weeks we've been hearing Halex's hydration help desk uh, It's a series talking about how water can be really good for you And why you need to drink lots of it This is the last episode of this series And he's talking all about making water there's a lot of different ways to make drinking water from condensation to desalination new tech is helping us make it all the time and hallux takes a look hallux's hydration help desk call accepted
4: hello professor i read that one in ten people on earth don't have access to clean drinking water why can't we just make more in a laboratory ah thought-provoking question there well the short answer is we can make water On cold days when the windows have misted up, we're doing it without even trying. The difficult part is making enough to provide a source of drinking water. Loads of scientists, though, are working on ways to make more drinkable water. Let's check it out. I've already mentioned mist on windows. That mist is made up of tiny drops of water which have condensed out of the air when they hit the cold glass. That's why it's called condensation. Condensation is water and the process can be carried out on a bigger scale. Fog harvesters have been built in Ethiopia to catch the mist. They look like huge sheets of mesh. And the water droplets they trap are stored in tanks, literally making water from thin air. Of course the oceans are full of water. You just can't drink it unless you take the salt out. That's a process called desalination. It's expensive and takes a very long time, but a new style of desalination plant has got everyone very excited. It's called the pipe and looks like a long, glittering, silver, well, pipe. It's been developed off the coast of California, a very hot region in the United States which suffers frequent droughts and will use solar power to create over 1.5 billion gallons of clean water every year. Just think, using the same technology could produce drinking water from seawater anywhere in the world. Hmm, Nanobot. Aren't we told that electronic objects and water are two things that don't go together? How does it
3: all work? Well, the tiny particles of salt in the water have a positive charge and the molecules of water themselves have negative charges. A small electric current is sent through the water. Electric currents have a positive and negative aspect, and because opposites attract, the ions in the water are separated, enabling
4: the salt to be removed. Incredible. Given that one in ten people across the world don't have access to clean running water, this technology could help millions across
1: the world. All right, let's do my favourite part of the show. Uh, it's where I find your questions. You normally send them to me as voice notes on the Free Fun Kids app, and then I do a lot of digging. I spend hours looking online and through books, just diving into science, trying to figure out the answer for you. I love it, and I love all the questions that you send as a voice note on the Free Fun Kids app. Just like this from Barney.
0: Hello,
4: my name is Barney. I'm six years old, and I want to know how is carbon made?
1: All right, Barney. Carbon is a very important element. It's found all over the world in air. It makes carbon dioxide, which plants breathe. It helps trap the sun's heat too. If there was no carbon, none of the plants could breathe, which means you would struggle to breathe and eat too. And all of the oceans would be frozen solid. Have a listen to this. Mind-blowing. Where carbon comes from. Carbon, a lot of it was made in stars. So the nearest one to us is the sun there's a process called nuclear fusion happening all the time on the sun uh, it, there's a lot of pressure involved and heat it turns one element one gas into another and at the start of the universe that made loads of carbon which found its way here to earth so when you're breathing in air when you are uh, eating plants You're actually taking something in that has been around since the very start of the universe. Barney, thank you for that question. You can also leave questions as a review on Apple Podcasts, like Luke in Brighton, who wants to know, how deep do tree roots go? Well, normally, Luke, tree roots go between one and two metres deep into the ground. Almost all of the roots are quite high up. They're found close to the top of the soil in the top half. Sometimes tree roots can grow deep to about five metres. Sometimes they can grow even deeper, down to 10 metres. But the shepherd tree in the Kalahari Desert, which is in Africa, the roots there can grow down to 70 metres sprawling underground to keep the massive trees sturdy and upright. So Luke, that's how deep tree roots can go. Up to 70 metres down in the ground. Thank you so much for your question. If you've got something that you want answered next week on the podcast, dead easy, get out of the Free Fun Kids app, click record a message and send it through to me as a voice note. I cannot wait to hear what you want to ask.
0: happy reading
1: it's the fun kids science weekly now big news this week scientists have taught robots how to swim let's find out more with onshan Pak, who's from the university of santa clara Uh, onshan thank you for joining us Uh, my pleasure first off why teach these small robots how to swim what gave you that idea
2: Yeah, so there are many applications of this, you know, micro robots, right? For example, so these robots are very small, so there is like thickness of your size of your hair. So it turns out that when you want to have this robot to swim in such a small scale, so the way that they need to swim is very different from how we swim. So the idea is how can we use a computer algorithm to teach them how to swim by itself without us telling them how to swim. So, and there are many applications. If we can make this work, we can have this micro robot to deliver drugs in our body to perform uh, surgery for us inside our body. So there are a lot of applications of these micro robots. Yeah.
1: These small robots, you say, they are no bigger than our hair. What are
2: they made of? Then there can't be that much inside the robots if they're so small. Yeah, that's a great question. So, uh, because they are so small, so we cannot really afford a lot of complicated design. So we have nanotechnology to make these tiny robots, right? So they, some of them are made of uh, uh, nano wires. So nano wires is uh, some materials, metallic materials, right? That we can. Uh, make them very, very small. So, making them small is not a problem, but how to design simple mechanisms to um, help them swim is the challenge that we're encountering here. And that's why we're integrating the uh, advancement of machine learning or artificial intelligence to make this work.
1: So, tell us more about that. When you wanted these microbots, micro robots, sorry, to learn how to swim, how
2: did you start? What were you trying to get the computer to teach them? Yeah, that's a great question. It's a bit it's a bit a little bit like uh putting a baby, a human baby, into a swimming pool without teaching the baby how to swim at all, right? So initially the baby will struggle, right? Uh but then the baby will try uh some actions by moving uh his or her arms, right? The legs, and then the baby will start to gain some experience, right? And from that experience, oh when I move my left arm, I will actually go forward. When I push my legs, it will actually go backward, for example. So this is kind of a Learning from experience. So it's actually very similar. Now we are not putting a baby but putting a swimmer into a computer algorithm algorithm, right, to simulate the environment in the very, very small scale. So this the robots will try different things and they will gain experience. And then from the experience, they would know whether the action that they took is actually a good action or bad action. So this is what they what they call reinforcement learning. So uh, from the experience, they progressively learn what are the best strategy to swim. It's actually very much like human learning, but now all by a computer on its own. Sorry, when
1: these microbots are hopefully in our bloodstream to deliver medicine. How much will they be able to do? Are, are you just kind of programming them to do one thing and you're keeping their fingers crossed that they'll be able to do it or, or are they making decisions along the way when maybe they hit obstacles or come into difficulties?
2: oh that's a really great questions so uh yeah so now we are doing the very first step which is to help them uh to have them teach themselves how to swim so they interact with the environment and then they try to learn what is out there and then try to perform the actions but this is only the very first step right learning how to swim and then we do the the second step, which is how do they navigate from one point to the other point, right? So they, they, not, only know, they not only need to know how to swim, they also need to know how to turn, for example. Right. When you want to turn around, they need to do other actions rather than just swimming straight. Right. So this is uh, the swimming and the navigation part. But when you want to deliver drugs to different part of a body, you know, you don't just need to know how to swim. You may also need to know how to crawl on surfaces like intestines, for example. So now they will need to adjust, you know, uh, their movements from swimming to uh, crawling. Right, and sometimes they may need to jump around obstacles, as you said, right, so it 's pretty much like a triathlon, so that is the next step we try to do now we 're just doing swimming, but later on we need to really make it more like a triathlon that can adjust their movements around the body so they can they can really do the drug delivery or microsurgeries that we are envisioning.
1: You say they need to crawl, they need to swim.
2: What actually is powering the robot? I mean, they can't have arms and legs, surely. Great. So, uh, yeah. So there are many ways to power this. So right now, so sometimes people use external magnetic field. So this micro robot, uh, um, some of some of them are made of magnetic components. So we will actuate or make them move by adjusting the external magnetic field, so that they can move their arms. They can, or, or not arms, but their different components, mechanical components, based on the response. They respond to the external magnetic field using magnets, basically. Now
1: this is happening at the moment. The, the way AI and robots change grows year on year on year on year. What are you looking forward to see robots be able to do in kind of five
2: or 10 years time? Uh, yeah. So there's a lot of opportunity opportunities in this field. Right. As we mentioned, you know, right now we're really just doing the first step, you know, having them to swim in. Uh, but later on, as I said, we need to have them crawl, have them jump around obstacles. Uh, We also want them to be able to actually detect, you know, you know, uh, some chemical signals. For example, they want to get to somewhere. We don't know, uh, let's say, where the cancer cell is. If we're able to actually have them Find uh, what uh, what they need to find, and then go there by themselves autonomously. That will be a great help to the. That will be an evolution of the medical treatment of many diseases. So that will be, you know, uh, the uh, far-reaching goal we are trying to get.
1: you know, when you see sci-fi movies, when the robots take over, and there are always people in like white lab coats, and they're always panicked, and it's kind yeah. of like they they've pushed it too hard. I guess. Are you ever worried that? That, that that might be you. Yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> and I, 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 this is interesting. I keep thinking about this myself as well. Yeah. But sometimes I think that, you know, even things that are not as smart as this kind of smart robots... Uh, that human make they can all make mistakes as well, right? So even a car that we design, right, that can also turn out to be a disaster if we don't use them properly. Yeah. So whether they have artificial intelligence or you know without artificial intelligence, I think humans just need to be responsible and then you know design the machines, the robot, you know, in in a good manner that they won't harm us in in uh, in the future. So
1: Well, it's been a real treat to chat to you all the way from. Uh, California. Early in the morning for you, so I really appreciate you taking the time. on Pak, thank you for being there.
2: No problem. Thank you. Thanks for talking with me.
1: Let's do this week's Dangerous Stand, then, where we look at the most mean and strangely cruel things in the universe. Uh, This time out, we're looking at an incredible predator that I've only just learned about. To find out more, we need to head to Madagascar. Madagascar is an island off the coast of Africa. You might know it from the movies. It's home to the lemur, famously. And there's also one creature you might not have heard about, the fossa. Now, why I love doing this podcast with you, it's just learning about so many incredible beasts that we never talk about. The fossa normally has a golden, sandy coat. It's got wide-searching eyes, small, open ears. They look a bit like a small panther, but are more closely related to the mongoose. And it looks like a big cat, but kind of closer to the mongoose. It's the largest of all the carnivores on Madagascar. And they're the oldest too. They've been around for years and years and years. They eat lemurs and birds and rodents and lizards. They go hunting through the day in the morning and in the evening. If you've got a cat, they're a bit like that too. They kind of sleep on and off throughout the day. It's got sharp, strong teeth, razor-like claws as well that can swipe, and it's a very smart beast, incredibly agile, climbing trees to perch and search for food. Now, they can be quite heavy for their size, but what's brilliant, the fossa is amazingly quick, supple and flexible, and it, if it wants its dinner, it's remarkably deadly, which means the fossa from Madagascar needs to go on our Dangerous stand list. Okay, last up this week, let's get another episode from Amy's Aviation. Earlier, we heard from Halex. We're always hearing from genius friends of the show. Amy loves aeroplanes and loves talking about why they fly, what the wings are made of. We've heard about what the propellers do. This week on Amy's Aviation, it's all about jet engines and how they power planes to keep them in the sky.
3: We've been making some more paper planes in class. but even my best ones don't stay up very long. What my plane really needs is more thrust. You see, if you want your aircraft to fly, it needs lift to get it into the air, but it's thrust that keeps it going once it's up there. Some aircraft use propellers to create thrust, using the movement of air over the propeller blades. But there's another, more powerful way to do the job. There's some clever science behind the power of jet engines and it all starts in the 18th century. Now, obviously you didn't get many planes in the 18th century. OK, you didn't get any planes, but there's a very good reason why we're here. There was a famous scientist who came up with the idea that's behind all jet engines.
4: Uh, uh, my third law of motion states that for every action there was an equal and opposite reaction. I thank you.
3: That's Isaac Newton. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. So, what's that all about? Think of it this way Have you ever let go of a balloon before the end's been tied? What happens? <laughs> That's right. Air comes out of the balloon, doesn't it? That's what makes the rude sound. And as it does, the balloon's propelled all around the room in all sorts of crazy directions. Well, that's Newton's equal and opposite reactions at work. A jet engine is like a tube in which fuel and air are burned under very high pressure. It gets so amazingly hot that it forces gases out of the back of the tube. This pushes the plane forward. This means that the jet engine and the plane it's attached to are off. All that air that the engine needs is sucked in by a giant fan at the front of the engine. to take a trip around the moon, propellers and jet engines wouldn't be any use because there isn't any air up in space. You'd need to take your own air in tanks to mix with the fuel. This sort of engine is called a rocket. (laughs) Now whilst Newton could take credit for the scientific principle behind jets, someone else had to actually build the first one. Although it was really two people. Meet Dr Hans von Oheim, a German who designed a turbojet in Germany just before the Second World War. What he didn't know was that the British were working on something very similar. Now, while Sir Frank Whittle registered a patent for his turbojet before Hans did, Hans beat Sir Frank to the skies with his plane taking flight in 1939. It wasn't until 1941 before the British jet was airborne, can take the credit. <laughs> These days both designers are recognized as being the co-inventors of the jet engine even though both worked separately and knew nothing of the other's work. You'll find jet engines on almost all types of aircraft and there's one thing they have in common. They're fast! We use the speed of sound as a measuring stick for airplane velocity. Sound moves through air at about 760 miles an hour And if an airplane reaches the speed of sound, its speed is called Mark 1. Now, if an airplane reaches double the speed of sound, its speed is Mark 2, which would mean travelling over 1,500 miles an hour. And if you think that's fast, well, it gets even faster than that. Sun jets can reach Mark 3 or even more, while space rockets can get up to Mark 10 and beyond. A shame I can't build a rocket for my paper plane. Time for me to fly. See you soon and chucks away.
1: We'll have more from Amy's aviation at the same time next week, and that is it for this week's Fun Kids Science Weekly. Uh, if you've got a question that you want answered on the show, the best way to get through to me, which makes you star in the podcast as well, just leave it as a voice note on the free Fun Kids app. Dead simple. Uh, if you've enjoyed some of the series that we've had so far, we heard from Professor Halleck's, we heard from Amy's Aviation. We've got so many of them over on Apple, Google, Spotify, wherever you get your shows. They're on the free Fun Kids app and at funkidslive.com too. Fun Kids as well, we are a children's radio station. I'd love you to listen across the country on your DAB digital radio on the free Fun Kids app and at funkidslive.com.